got the money, I've got the time. You want your freedom, your freedom mine. Cause I've got the style it takes. Money's all that it takes. You've got connections, and I've got the art. You like what I do, I like your looks And I have the style it takes And you know the people it takes Why don't you sit right over there We'll do a movie portrait I'll turn the camera on And I won't even be there Portrait that moves, you look great, I think. I'll put the Empire State Building on your wall. For 24 hours, you'll see it on your wall. Watch the sun rise above it in your room. Wallpaper art, a great view. I've got a brillo box, and I say it's art. It's the same one you can buy at any supermarket Cause I've got the style it takes And you've got the people it takes This is a rock groove called the Velvet Underground They play when we show movies, don't you like their sound? Cause they have a style that grates I have the art to make Let's do a movie here next week We don't have sound, but you're so great You don't have to speak You've got the style of days You've got the style it takes You've got the style it takes You've got the style it takes You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Blake Bell, Toronto's own comics historian. Uh, his latest book is the um, Bill Everett biography, Fire and Water, as well as um, curating. Would, would that be a good term? Editing? Curating? I like curating, but I'll say editing, I guess. Uh, the Steve Ditko Archives for Phonographics, of which there are two so far, as well as the uh, two debut um, beginning this summer, uh, the Bill Everett Archives collecting his Golden Age material, which uh, sounds like a very excellent, worthwhile endeavor, especially after reading the uh, biography. So, thanks for joining me today, Blake. My pleasure, Robin. Glad to be here. Excellent. Blake was on... What was that? Three years ago? Two years ago? I think, I'm going to say three years ago before to discuss the Steve Ditko book, um, which I quite enjoyed. Thank you. Yeah, I think it was the summer summer of '08. Sounds right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's close enough. Close to three years. Um, 
So when we talked before, you were mentioning the starting works on the Bill Everett biography. And maybe for folks that don't know who Bill Everett is, a brief synopsis of synopsis of who he is. Bill Everett is many things. He was born William Blake, Bill Everett. His family history, he's a descendant of the, the, the poet, the English poet, William Blake. Uh, he entered the comic book field in the golden age of comics in the 1930s, working first for Centaur Publications on books like Amazing Man, and that ultimately led him to create the Submariner for Marvel Comics number one, the very first Marvel comic back in 1939, and subsequently he went on to work uh, most of his career at Marvel, including a, a terrific stint in the 1950s on their horror books. And then during the 60s, he also co-created Daredevil with Stan Lee, uh, and subsequently un and unfortunately passed away far too early in 1973 at the age of 55, just as he was really hitting another peak in his career. So we, we lost him very early, but he definitely left a large legacy behind. And as you mentioned, uh, Amazing Mysteries, the Bill Everett Archives Volume 1 that's coming out in July at the San Diego Comic-Con, collects and reprints for the first time his non-Marvel comic books work uh, from 1938 to 1942. So a lot of the stuff that he was doing before and during the time of when the Submariner was also at Marvel uh, will be presented in that book. Tell me a bit about what pulled him into comics at that as a young man. Well, he was a child prodigy. Uh, he came from an upper-middle-class family. Uh, the town of Everett, Massachusetts, is named after his great-grandfather, Edward Everett, who was also a... he went on to be U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, so, you know, he was... they were... you know, they were prominent uh, in their day, and he showed an early affectation for drawing and writing and subsequently um, went on to some advertising jobs, uh, working for tech publications, uh, which ultimately, uh, through, through an association to that, led him to editor Lloyd Jaquette at the Centaur Publications company who had just started up. And he had, Bill had just been fired from uh, his latest job was looking for work, and a colleague who had worked with him previously pulled him in, and that's where he started in 1938 at Centaur, working on characters like Skyrocket Steel and Dirk the Demon, uh, as well as Amazing Man, that he's probably most famous for, other than the Submariner and Daredevil. And that ultimately led him uh, to create the Submariner in 1939 as part of the package of materials uh, that was the contents to Marvel Comics number one. He uh, really came into comics right at the, the ground floor of when everything was happening. Um, did that give him the chance as a creator um, to really be able to play with more what he was doing with less expectations of product? I would say so from, from the perspective that you know, he already had a, a great sense of storytelling, and you can see it in those very early books. You know, a lot of people that came into comic books were people that were waiting for, you know, a syndicated strip to drop in their lap or a better-paying advertising gig. 
uh, but you know, quite clearly, as you can just see from the work itself, he had a much more polished uh, look about him. He was a much better sequential storyteller, and he, you know, if you look at the first 12 issues of Marvel Comics slash Marvel Mystery Comics, they almost read like a graphic novel. They're just a continuing story running throughout, and the same can be said of Skyrocket Steel and other books. They're always continuing, so he always had something more in his mind than just hacking out a few pages for a particular issue and then treating it as disposable. So he, he did have an interest in the form beyond uh, just what you know, was expected at that time. You know, kitty fare, 10 cents a pop, uh, disposable, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Stuff that would have been pulped if uh, it was left on the stands, pretty much. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really interesting looking at any of the uh, original work you have from, from his early days, because you really see the amount of craftsmanship that he put into his comics. I remember when I was in Toronto, I was talking to you about looking at the uh, the black and white, the original, the images of the Daredevil pages, even though it's later later work, but still, it's like capturing just this amazing um, production and stuff that really gets lost in the low production techniques of that time. Well, we really got lucky on the the Fire and Water book in association with uh, the Everett family especially uh, Bill's daughter, Wendy Everett, and she dug up these fantastic, you know, 1937 sketchbooks, so long before, not long before, but before Bill got into comics, and we reprinted uh, numbers of those, and you might remember in the book the picture of Lucille Ball, the sketch of Lucille Ball, and just mm-hmm. how, how well refined it was. And then you look at the first couple issues, uh, the first couple episodes of The Submariner, Marvel Comics number one, done on the craft tint paper, and just the effect that he's going for. Uh, again, very similar to Steve Ditko in the in the sense that you have two artists there who who do have more of an interest in the form instead of just pushing something out the door uh, for a quick paycheck. Uh, you can really see their desire to take it to another level. And unfortunately, in both artists' case, uh, printing as it was back in those days and just editorial practices didn't always allow for that kind of experimentation to dominate. So as, as we saw with the, the Submariner, uh, the, the first two issues of Marvel Comics didn't quite pan out as perfectly uh, from the use of that effect that he was looking for to represent, you know, underwater. Uh, but, you know, he always maintained that throughout his life, just uh, something different about him uh, that carried him to, to, do, to take that, the medium out just an extra step. There was a mention in there of um, the way he created in the kind of author standpoint of writing and drawing was very unique at that time. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a bit of of his process and how that was a little different than the majority of his peers? Well, he was a he was he was one of the first five tool players, as I re- refer to him as. Uh, in the industry, I and mean, he could write, he could pencil, he could ink, he could letter, and he could color. So, you know, he was ideal uh, when you think about just being able to, to put someone to work and and produce a finished piece. And you really see the value in that in terms of, you know, he was, you know, comic books were a, a little grittier back in the, the late 1930s than we would normally think uh, because of the, the pulp sensibility that sort mm-hmm. of infused that period. Uh, but there is, again, something extremely different about Everett's work, uh, you know, where most people were doing these lofty, marble-like superheroes. 
you know, the Submariner, and even Amazing Man, to a degree, there's really angry, there's a real sense of anger uh, in these characters that drove them. Uh, really, I think we have to credit Bill Everett with coming up with the first anti-hero in the Submariner. And, you know, characters like Wolverine and onwards really are descendants uh, of Bill's lineage. And that was, it was, it's really amazing to go back to those first issues of Marvel Comics and see those Submariners and just the, the, the moral conflict that would develop with that character. But again, you know, very aggressive. Like the Submariner got put in the electric chair. Uh, <laughs> I know, that battle was amazing. Yeah, you know, because a policeman died while in battle. That So, you know, Everett didn't mess around back in those days. He was, he was a very aggressive storyteller, and he was, he was obviously, you know, working out or representing whatever was inside him at that time. Uh, doesn't it have, like... Him getting put in the chair and just here, just just sit here for a minute, or something. I'm trying to remember. What he got dragged in there. He was a little drugged up, and he got uh, dragged in there. And yeah, they sat him down, <laughs> fired the bolts through him, and uh, probably not the best idea to fire volts through a uh, through a superhero because uh, it didn't do the trick. No. Here, I, I found the panel. So that's what you did to me. Another one of Betty's tricks. It was the doctor's idea, Namor. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drugs will always help. Them. Yeah. Um, what's your particular interest in Bill Everett? Where does that stem from? Well, it dates back to my um, pre-high school days. I think I was sitting at the Upper Canada College Library in 1982, I believe it was. Perhaps, actually, perhaps 83, and just leaping through some of the books they had on comics. And I'm not sure if it was the Crawford Encyclopedia of Comics or another book. Uh, that reprinted uh, the first appearance of Hydro-Man, another great strip that Everett did that we'll be reprinting in the uh, Bill Everett archives. And I also remember seeing that, uh, which I don't think I saw the actual Steranko history of comics, but that great black and white image that Everett did for him uh, of them seemingly in a, in, a, in a tunnel underground and the Submariner delivering that knockout punch to the human torch who was all bent back and just like my you know, affectation for Ditko, there was just something unique and original about the way uh, he drew those characters. And there was a polish that you didn't see, uh, an extra effort that you didn't see in a lot of those Golden Age books, unless it was by you know classics like Wolverton or Eisner or mm -hmm. Jack Cole. Uh, so that right away just leaped out. And, and yes, it was rather amusing going around to comic book conventions in Toronto in the mid-'80s when you know Frank Miller and John Byrne were all the rage. And the Jack Kirby's and the Steve Ditko's at that time in history were pretty much well farther on the back burner than they you know, became in the late 90s and in the past 10 or so years. Most of the art dealers, most of the comic dealers there couldn't believe that these 15, 14-year-old kids were interested in Ditko and Everett, so they had to pull out their boxes from behind the table and, <laughs> and put them up there so we could leaf through them. And you know they were they were quite happy to see that you know a, a younger generation was leading through that. You know we we admired all the artists of the day as well, but uh, we certainly sought out what was of interest throughout the medium's history. I love that you discovered this in the uh, uh, in school at Upper Canada College for Americans or other Canadian listeners that don't know. It's kind of one of the loftier high schools. Uh, um, I don't maybe not necessarily loftier, but. It's Super expensive uh, might be the word now. I think yeah. when, I was, like, when I was going there from 
82 to about 89, it was about $10,000 a year, and now I hear it's exceeded $25,000 a year. So it's an old English school that goes back, you know, I think Stephen Leacock and others, many graduated from there, but it goes back to the 1800s. So, yeah, it was cute to find that they had a, a nice extensive library that would house this, you know, lowbrow entertainment from the, the 1930s that we could uh, just revel in page by page. <laughs> um, a whole bunch of my family went there, and that's the only reason I particularly <laughs> know about it. It's definitely no part of uh, of my education, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunate. I don't know. Um didn't Tell keep me away from comic books, that's for no. sure. So. And I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, Tell about the research pulling together the book and some of the stuff that came up from it. Um, how much new learning... Yeah, I think I asked about I was, five different things there. <laughs> I was... Uh, I was I was a bit of a taskmaster with Wendy Everett in terms of biographical details about her dad's life because a couple of things. Obviously, with, with Bill passing away that early, he had very little opportunity to be, you know, become a major part of comic book fandom. He was in the very late 60s and the early 70s getting interviewed the odd time and being acknowledged by you know, the growing fandom that there was. But... Bill was a great storyteller in many senses, not just on the comic book page, but about his own life. So over the course of his history, he tended to play a little fast and loose with some of the, uh, the, the, the facts about his life. So, you know, we went through, Wendy Ever and I went through not just, you know, what her dad was like and about, but really trying to dig down and uh, to sort out the details of the man's, you know, upbringing, you know, dates. Um, what he was doing, where he was doing it, because there's so much in what little is out there uh, mm -hmm. that was, you know, from interviews with Bill or just biographies on him, so much of it is just so riddled with errors. So this is, it was really great to have all of that information put in the Fire and Water book uh, so that you can, you can see the actual truth about it. So that was, that was uh, fantastic from that perspective. But then it was also great to hear you know, people, you know, people who had worked with Bill or knew Bill talk about not just his talent, but also the impact he had on their lives when he finally sobered up in the, the late 60s. You know, to hear, I was at the San Diego Comic-Con last year, and to hear Gary Friedrich talk about, you know, the, the creator of the original Ghost Rider, to hear him talk about how Bill Everett saved his life, um, getting him into AA because Bill had gone through the same experience and to hear Wendy Everett talk about her dad's funeral uh, which was you know very obviously very upsetting for her so she doesn't remember a lot of it but what she does remember is the the extraordinary amount of non-comic book people who are at the funeral mm -hmm. thanks to Bill's you know work in AA uh, so it was it's a very it's a story filled with redemption because you know, he he started off, you know, as, as part of the, you know with some blue blood in him, and then but when he was 12 years old, he had his first drunk, uh, hanging out with the cowboys in Arizona, where he was down there to recuperate from tuberculosis, and you know he was a functioning alcoholic, but as Wendy said, you know he never met a deadline that he uh, barely met or liked, and really started to crash uh, in the 1960s, especially when his wife passed away. 
but you know he hit rock bottom and he pulled himself out of it and unfortunately um, mainly because of the smoking I think the two three packs a day of smoking his body had been so ravaged that uh, we just lost him far too early Normally, I don't like to get into into creators' personal lives when it comes to like their alcoholism, but it seems so central to who he was as a person. Just how he lived his life, 
in that. Well, we compared we compared him in the introduction to Peter Pan, uh, you know, this this boy who never really wanted to grow up. Uh, you know, he he had children, he loved his children, you know, they loved him, uh, but he really was just this fanciful figure, bouncing through life, uh, enjoying you know enjoying everything that he could wring out of it, and you know, it's it, it there was consequences to be paid later, that's for sure. Um, but you know, you're right. It was you know he had this fiery passion in him from day one. It got him into serious trouble on every job that he ever had in and outside of comics. Uh, fired anytime he would. You, if you go back and read any of the accounts of his life or any interviews, you know he tries to make it sound like he had jumped from job to job. But as Wendy said, the reality was he was canned from pretty much every job. And holding down a nine to five was virtually impossible. And and you know he would wait until the last minute in terms of comic book deadlines, and then with extraordinary speed, you know, whip off what he needed to whip off and get it out the door to Stanley. Sometimes uh, ineffectually, like Daredevil number one, where he was working his regular non-comics job and trying to get back into the the field. Because now we're talking 1963, 64, when he'd been out of it since the late 50s, and he couldn't get it all done. So he had, you know, Stan had to have Saul Brodsky and Ditko, who happened to have been in the office at that time, to come in and finish off some backgrounds and whatnot. So, yeah, you're, you're right. There's that, there's that passion. There's that fire. There's that amazing talent. But it did have a, a dark side that overwhelmed him and, you know, forced him to, to crash and rebuild his life in the late 60s and ultimately, uh, unfortunately, not uh, early enough to, to save it mm-hmm. and see him him extend his life into uh, what would have been the, a glorious period. Because as, as anyone who's seen those Submariner issues from the 1970s, right before he was passing, right before he passed away, can attest, those are that's great work. Like that's the best work he'd probably done in you know 10, 15 years. Uh, so it's unfortunate we didn't get to see that come to fruition even further. You can really see that in the uh, in the scans you have of that, those later pages, just the craftsmanship that went into them. Yeah, it's a read. You can see it from the when he, I mean, he came back. He tried to come back to, to Marvel in late '63 with Daredevil, producing that book, and didn't work out. And then he came back in late '65, and a lot of that work on the Submariner and the Hulk and Doctor Strange, pretty tentative. Uh, Mike Friedrich, had, who had ruined with him at the time, talked that he had lost a lot of confidence in his penciling and his layout abilities. So that's why he preferred to do inking because he could almost just go on autopilot, and he was he was great at it, of course, uh, and he could color and things of that nature. But you know, by the time he had quit the drinking and entered into AA and really turned his life around, you know, he found he found that again that ability, that confidence in his storytelling, and that was working its way back into that Submariner book quite rapidly, and you're right, when you look at the, the black and white work and you see the, the detail in it, it, it far exceeds what he was doing even just five years prior. Uh, yeah, you just compare it, say, to like the Hulk page, where it's just, you're not really feeling too much in there, as much as you look at the Namor page and just... Well, Everett was great, it like, it, Everett was great like Ditko in terms of their ability to capture texture. When they were at yeah. their best, you could really, you when you saw the ocean bottom in some of those Submariner pages. I think there's one where there's a, there's a casket for, well, I can't remember who it is now, but you know, on the ocean floor, and you really see just every nook and cranny uh, of the rock face, and just like Ditko's drapery. You know, it really gives a 3D quality to the image 
Whereas you're right, some of the the earlier, uh, the late '60s stuff, like the the Daredevil and the Hulk, or not the Daredevil per se, but certainly the Hulk and the Doctor Strange, you don't see that there as much. And you know that was an issue of confidence and where he was at his life. Uh, and it was great to see him turn that around in the latter stages. There's a little bit, I don't know, is it ironic that Wally Wood ended up following him up on Daredevil? Yeah, it's... Um, Odd? You know, I don't know. It's comic just... books are, you know, it's, it's one of the fascinating, it's fascinating to look at the work and just see this craftsmanship, especially as far back with Everett, in the 1930s, mm-hmm. but it's also fascinating to research and get an understanding of the conditions under which these individuals worked, and just the extreme isolation that must have existed. Yeah, and and thinking that you're you're doing work that, other than the the, the in the moment enjoyment that a child might get out of it, your whole life's work is what mean comes to what means nothing. You know, there's no pension involved. There's Nope. There's nothing. You're not. You're living month to month. A book could be gone tomorrow. A company could be gone tomorrow. So trying to imagine what that's like, uh, and I, I assume to a degree that you know the the you know the people of that generation were of a slightly hardier stock than we are today. But still, you know, was has has been documented. You know, lots of examples of alcoholism and uh, as a way to cope with that type of you know that isolation. So it's fascinating to see them see the work, and it's fascinating to trace, you know, the the ancestry of the industry itself, but also to look at these individuals and how much pleasure they've given us, and with the great work they produced, and try to imagine it producing it in the circumstances that they did. To go with the the legacy of Everett, um, Kim Deitch is very um, vocal about the importance of Everett. On his work, I remember talking to Kim about about Everett's work about how like he would track down just even just pages ripped from sto- Golden Age stories, and just like have a box of that or just coverless comics just to track down. Um, so maybe tell me a little bit about the influence he's had on some of our more contemporary folks. Well, what was fascinating at the San Diego Comic Con this past year was when Wendy Everett came to the show, uh, and we did our panel, and that was the first time she held a copy of this book on her dad, who had you know, been gone for 37 years at that point, and imagine, you know, your father passing away in 1973, and, and you know, the, the gap between now this rebirth of uh, people's interest in her father's work. Uh, what was interesting was taking her around to the various tables and you know not only just having her hold her father's original comic book artwork and hearing dealers uh, react uh, to her presence but also comic book creators themselves uh, acknowledging uh, their you know her father's influence on their work you know being right there with Gilbert Hernandez and and learning that it's Wendy Everett standing in front of him and you know his acknowledgments to her of of how much he enjoys uh, her father's work was fascinating, and and you saw that in individual after individual. So it's it's amazing how people as far as old as Gil Kane were in awe of Bill Everett's work. Gil always pointed out Amazing Man as some of the best material of the golden age of comics. 
it's it's amazing to see people like Kim Deitch, who uh, you know an underground you know quote unquote underground artist or alternative artist, uh, and the influence that Everett has on his life and work, and then to see you know a younger generation or you know the the, the 80s and upward generation mm-hmm. like the the Hernandez brothers also being influenced and inspired by Bill Everett's work. One person that stuck out to me that this may just be my own interpreting was you could see a lot of Charles Burns taking from Bill Everett that just that thick black line yeah, that I he'd have agree. especially when you see that the 50's horror work that mm-hmm. Bill Everett did and you contrast that uh, with with Charles Burns work you can definitely see some interesting similarities it's good stuff good stuff um, just to remind folks, I'm talking to Blake Bell, whose latest book is Fire and Water, as well the yeah, the biography of Bill Everett, which we've been discussing about, as well editor of the um, Steve Ditko archives with Fanographics, and the upcoming um, Bill Everett archives with Fanographics. Everything's just Fanographics. Does that make things easy? I think that makes things easy. Um, why don't we get into the archives? Um, First, let's go through the Bill Everett ones and what it's been like putting those together. Well, it's always it's always great fun researching these books and and collecting this material because you know there's nothing better than that moment when you you know you turn over a rock and there's something that's almost no one has ever seen before. Uh, it's amazing how with the Bill Everett archives how we're just uncovering all of these text illustrations that Bill Everett did that are buried in the, the Centaur books or the other books from that period. Uh, we found a couple of textillos from 1938, and text illustrations are illustrations that went with these two- or three-page text stories that comic book companies had to put in their comics so they would get you know, uh, better postage rates uh, when mailing out. Mm-hmm. So basically they were just throwaway stories. Nobody cared anything about them. And so nobody really tracked them as well. So here we find two illustrations from 1938, like Bill Everett's first few months in comic books, and the percentage of the population that has probably seen any of these. And now we've uncovered, we're into the double digits now of uncovering these things. So it's always fascinating when something brand new that you've never seen comes right out of the woodwork. And then it's also great to really dig back and try to build a roadmap almost of of the industry at that time and just see the the connections because it was very incestuous in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You couldn't lob a rock without hitting someone that you had worked with or worked for. So it's also great fun, you know, to collaborate with other people who are strong in their knowledge of that era. And again, really, what you know, what are we all doing? We're all interested in presenting and preserving this work, but we're also interested in putting down facts on paper and making you know the picture of that era and the facts of that era more clear and more transparent so we have a you know a, a true perspective uh, and a true timeline on the industry itself when you're uh, putting the work together um, tell me the choice of how you guys are scanning and presenting the pages yeah we are doing it right from the comics as we've done from the Steve Ditko archives as well and Fantagraphics does amazing work uh, taking the scans that I present to them and and just, boom, magic, a magic wand, and they look so pristine and so great. I'm very happy and very thrilled 
with what we've seen, especially you know from the first Pico archives on downwards. So I expect nothing less out of them um, <laughs> or the the Bill Everett archives. So I'm very enthused about that uh, because you know this is really work. This Bill Everett archives work. I mean, you're talking 1938 to 1942, the non-marble work that has literally never been reprinted and, and very seldom seen. Uh, even on on the internet, trying to find that type of material is is very challenging. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what Fanographics does with that material.
Okay, everybody. Put on some makeup. Turn on the A-track. Now I'm pulling away down from the show. Is there any word of Marvel kind of putting together, say, Bill Everett collections as well? Or will it just be more of their continuous, here's, you know, 30 issues in an omnibus of so-and-so series? You know, I think there's a dream out there that they would, for example, collect all of Steve Ditko's, you know, pre-Spider-Man type five-page Twilight Zone type stories. Yeah. Bus, that would be that would be a dream. I mean, they're already you know doing a great job reprinting you know the 1950s Everett work in Strange Tales and books like that, like the Marvel Masterworks series. So that alone is is fantastic to see in that context. I don't think they're going to cannibalize those books just yet to then yank out all the Everett's and put them into one volume. Yeah. What what we've done, what we're doing with the Everett archives, because you've got such a contained period of time, we're structuring the book to where we're grouping it by character. So rather than just sort of a run of, okay, volume one is 1938 to 1940, and then volume two is 1940 to 42, we're taking you know the Amazing Mans and grouping them together, uh, the first half for volume one, the second half for volume two, doing the same thing with Hydro Man, because if you didn't do that, you'd have you'd have no Hydro Man basically in volume one, for example, and no Amazing Man in volume two, and it's really fascinating to, to see both and to see them grouped by hero, which you can do in that work because there wasn't a lot of miscellaneous stuff. Like they were chasing down, you know, Superman copies. They wanted to you know, <laughs> rip off. The, they wanted to rip off the success of that. So even before Superman, though, they were starting to head towards the action adventure hero in the in the year before Superman was out there. But obviously, Superman, you know, inspired you know the desire to create characters like Amazing Man. So we're grouping them together like that, and it's it's really fascinating to see the, you know, the the very earliest Everett from 1938 versus a couple of years later when he is even more polished and refined. There's a rawness to the earlier material, but there's this great polish to the later material. And again, not too dissimilar from Steve Ditko. You can look at the very earliest Amazing Spider-Man, and they have this beautiful raw quality to them, and then he becomes much more sort of polished as you get into the. You know, Amazing Spider-Man 33, those famous books, and, and it's similar in Everett's uh, yeah. category as well. You can really see uh, Dicko pouring his life in those later Spider-Mans. 
right he's certainly representing more of what he considers you know the romantic hero mm. uh, you know when you see spider-man in, in number 33 shoving off all that machinery uh, all the muscles are bulging everything is is well in proportion compared to the very first, you know, Amazing Fantasy 15 when he's almost a stick figure by comparison. And it's interesting to see the new Spider-Man movie that they're working towards is almost going back to that Ditko, uh, that, you know, the original Ditko essence of this sort of spindly character uh, swinging around on webs. One can hope. One can hope. Um, let's get into the Ditko archives then. You are, you have two out now. Um, the first one, I guess, just being a general collection of horror work, was it? No, we're pretty much, uh, the first collection was everything that he did from the start of his career in, you know, 1953 up to the end of basically 54 when he had, so all his, all the work that he did pre-Comics Code Authority. So it all fit nicely into one volume because, you know, at the end of that period, uh, he became sick with tuberculosis, had to go back to Johnstown, Pennsylvania to recuperate. And now in the second volume, after you know a year's or so break, he's now back. And of course, Charlton Comics has been you know under flood by Hurricane Diane there in late fifty five. So this is where he you know he's going around and he turns to Marvel Comics. and the first strips he's doing with Stan Lee appear uh, in the the second volume. and but then that, that work dries up, and he goes right back to Charlton Comics uh, in late 56, early 57, and that's what Volume 2 represents. Uh, that, that, those stabs, those first stabs at Mysteries of Unexplored Worlds and the, the sci-fi mystery-type genres. You know, the Tales of the Mysterious Traveler would be in the next volume, would dominate the next volume. The This Magazine is Haunted which was a fantastic book, featured his best work at that time. So first book, all pre-code, and now we get into the meat of when he's really starting to develop as an artist. I uh, Before you started putting those volumes together, I'd gone on my own little run of picking up cheap Charlton reprints for you know a dollar or less each, and then just ripping out the pages and getting them bound into a book of just Ditko various, and it's quite fun. There's just so much out there to be mined of Ditko, it really blows my mind of just how much he produced we, we in that go, period. We could, go on for, we could go on for quite a while with these Ditko archives. I mean, you're talking about an artist, you know, we talked earlier about Bill Everett, you know, procrastinating quite a bit until that deadline hit, and then he would, you know, as Wendy said, he would just, he was a, a very fast artist, but he just wouldn't be fast until the last moment, whereas Ditko had no compulsion like that at all. Ditko was Ditko was always drawing. So you're talking about a man who produced, you know, we're talking pencils and inks here, 400-plus uh, pages for, 19, for 1957, then another 400-plus in 58, and another 400-plus in 59. So, you know, at 200 pages of volume uh, <laughs> of these archives, you could go on for a while, and that doesn't even begin to touch, you know, the Gorgo and the Congo, the Congo stuff of the, uh, the early 60s. So, you know, until you get to that point of Captain Adam in, you know, 66, and the Blue Beetle that DC Comics owns, uh, given that there's that little period between 63 and 66 where there's not a lot of, you know, non-Marvel Ditko work, mm -hmm. you know, you got a ways to go, so you're right in terms of, uh, there's so much incredible work out there because Ditko was just, that was his life, just 
comics, comics, and more comics. And it's going to be great to be able to collect all those in, in these volumes and just see the, the, the scope and the, the arc of his stylistic development because it takes a big jump in, uh, our, in the second archives volume that just came out in December. The first volume is fun because it's pre-code, so you, know, you get to see Ditko unleashed uh, you know, with abs <laughs> and you know decapitations and all these sort of interesting things, but um, the second volume is is just as fascinating in my eyes because now you're really starting to see the Steve Ditko that you know we know. You're starting to see those design elements uh, come out in his work, and it's going to get even better as we go forward into the volume three that'll be coming out later this year. It's really amazing. Like uh, I remember one cover to a Charlton thing. He just said the cover. He didn't do any inter uh, interior stuff, and it was like this picture frame with a picture frame in it, another picture frame in it, but it's like this dimensional gateway thing. I can't even describe it, and uh, just amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of precursors to some of his Marvel work in there. I remember that issue that you're talking about. Uh, I believe it's a strange suspense stories, if I'm not mistaken, and it's and it's again it's 1957 five, six years before Doctor Strange, mm -hmm. and it has, you know, a guy stepping into that type of world that Doctor Strange, those other universes, other dimensions that Doctor Strange would be in there. There's this great story in one of the early 60s Charlton's about this Electro figure, just, you know, months before Spider-Man would face Electro. Uh, so there's a lot of terribly interesting things in there that will now be transparent for all to see that you can later see in his Marvel work. So as far as what you're reprinting, um, obviously you're not going to be able to reprint the, um, the the superhero work, the Captain Atom, the Blue Beetle, the Question, but you're going to have pretty c clear access to a lot of the Charlton work? Yeah, and Charlton... You know, what do they care about? You know, they, there's always been a debate of uh, Charlton, did they just produce comics just to keep their presses running 24-7 because it was expensive to shut mm -hmm. them down and turn them back on. Uh, so you know, they, were, they were not, comics were not their first business. Uh, they were producing magazines and songbooks and things of that nature. And why did Ditko love working there? He loved working there because just because they didn't care about their comics as long as they made a profit. The, their editorial staff was about as hands-off as you could ever desire uh, to be. So he, Ditko had no qualms about working for that company because he got to do an experiment in whatever way he wanted to. And you know that was different than obviously the other extreme, which was DC Comics, where they'd give you a, a full script and expect you to stick to it and have corrections, et cetera, et cetera. Here he could be left alone to do whatever he wanted as long as you know, he kept turning it in and they kept paying very quickly and he made up the lower page rates by just his very prolific nature. So that's where you get some just great experimentation in those books that you might not see otherwise uh, and in various genres. You know, it's fascinating to see Ditko westerns or Ditko romances or sci-fis or just absolutely every genre you can imagine in those books. I guess what what I was kind of veering towards is that a lot of that work is in public domain now. Yes. Um, and I, and well, God bless them. Yeah, God bless <laughs> that part of Charlton too. Is that they they some things they didn't even bother to register the first time around, much less uh, hang on to the copyright. You talk about you know working. We talked earlier about sort of what the the headspace would be of an artist working for uh, you know a disposable kitty fair like this. 
to where the point to the point of where the company doesn't even care enough to even copyright the material in the first go around, much less worry yeah. about renewing it later. So, you know, that's that's great from the perspective of we have an opportunity to uh, to represent it now. Which is funny when you compare with uh, just how brutal it was for a lot of folks with Marvel, just even down to the to the artwork that hasn't been returned or hadn't been returned and things like that. So you could really well, we see did why. A, we did an, did an interview like for the book release up here in Toronto with Wendy Everett, and I, I posed that question to her. You know, there's a move afoot now for the Kirby estate going after Marvel Comics and now made even uh, more interesting by Disney taking over Marvel, Disney's, uh, you know, litany of lawyers. And I posed that question to her, well, you know, why, why, why not pursue you know, de- co-ownership on Daredevil or ownership of the Submariner, and you know that's just not in the family's nature. But uh, to be litigious and and follow that rabbit hole downwards because it's probably going to be a very long rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's in, and you know the the work is there. They're they're happy to see their father's work back. You know, in in view. So that's you know, the, I mean, you were talking about this Bill Everett Golden Age work. And how much have they? How much have they actually seen of it? And now mm. they'll be able to have it as a, as a legacy for their children's children. There's also something to be said about when dealing of periods of with the alcoholism and the trauma, of how much do you want to get involved in what had happened then, in that aspect too. Yeah, there was. In other words, you know, there's the story that we tell in the book that I think Roy Thomas relates about how. Uh, in the late 60s, when I believe it was, you know, Simon and Kirby and and all those guys were trying to get after their characters at that point, and and the notion that uh, Everett signed a release uh, with Martin Goodman, the owner at the time, to basically just hand over the rights to the characters uh, for Everett's debts being paid off at that time. But you get, I mean, no one knew. Obviously, I mean, it's it's as old a story as as we we have in fandom for the last 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. No one had any clue of what the intellectual property was going to be worth. So even paperwork around things like that, even in the late 60s, you know, good luck and just, you know, it is, re- you know, you, it's, it's, it's up to each family. You know, if, if each family wants to, you know, defend that legacy, God bless them, more power to them. But, you know, it's also well within the rights of a family like the Everett family, uh, to not want to spend the rest of their lives, you know, chasing after Disney for for that type of for mm-hmm. that type of ownership to those characters. You know, some people like to leave it as legacies for their families, so that it can be for you know for legacy value and monetary value. But you know, that's obviously not an obsession of of the Everts in that regard. Mm-hmm. And there's also the balance of the fight for for one character, one or two characters versus the. Uh, the massiveness of the Kirby impact. Well, you can spend, you know, you've got X amount of years in this yeah. world, and you can spend <laughs> chasing something down yeah. like that. But, you know, I, I've, I encounter the same thing myself. You know, I've, I've got a, a regular job, and then I do these books on the side, and I balance it in with uh, raising a, an 11-year-old and, you know, taking care of my parents to the degree that I do, and where, where else is the time uh, to go chasing something down like that, where does it fall on the priority list? If I'm already okay financially and I've made peace with uh, 
you know, the legacy intact. I mean, remember, we're talking about uh, Bill Everett, who passed away in 1973. We're not talking about Jack Kirby, who yeah. had no, no, endured I... everything that he'd endured in the 1980s and gone through that. So that's, there's a huge gap in, the, in that, you know, of yeah. emotion in that time yeah. as well. Yeah, no, that's to say, they're very, very, very different situations. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think I've got myself covered here, Blake. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Just a reminder, folks, the books are uh, Fire and Water, Biography of Bill Everett, as well as the um, Steve Ditko Archives and the impendingly to be released um, Bill Everett Archives, as well as the um, uh, Steve Ditko Biography, which came out uh, almost three years ago from Fanographics as well. So thank you so much, Blake. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ron. On the day that you're meant to